Let us pray together. All us Christians pray to you, our Father, and all us Christians wish we did it better. We wish we had a better heart for it, a better head for it, and often better words for it. Here in this passage today that we're examining, your Son teaches us about all that. Help us hear and heed, learn, remember, and do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're looking at words that have been so often abused. Don't you almost not want to look at them sometimes? Don't you almost skip them in your reading? You know what people have done with these words. Uh, You'll say to this mountain, be thrown to the sea and it'll happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you'll receive it. You know how people have been hit with those words and people have taken advantage and twisted those words. But there is so much truth for us in these words. So we want to make sure we hear what Jesus is teaching. And often in the most difficult passages, there's some of the choicest truth. So we're going to begin by freshening our understanding of his very words so that we can understand what he's saying that is so vital to our faith, to our walk, to prayer. And then we'll work on applying these words and the truths that they teach to our lives in very specific ways to see how we do what Jesus is teaching us here. So let's dig right in and hear what he has to say. Laying first the foundations from the texts in verses 21 and 22 where we're focusing today. Verse 21 gives us Jesus' principle. You have my translation there. And an answer Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only what was done to the fig tree will you do, but instead even if to this mountain you say be picked up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. So this is Jesus' principle here then in verse 21. And let's see uh, and work together at having the mind of Christ What does he mean when he says have faith? This is number one we're looking at. Having the mind of Christ, what have faith means. Jesus says, amen, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt. Now, first we need to be instructed by the near context. Context, as you've heard countless times, is so important. What is the context? It's, it's the fact that, remember, these verses in the Bible, they're not so many uh, fortune cookie slips of paper out floating loose in the wind. They're in a flow of thought. They're in a setting. And it's crucial to see the setting, to see what comes before, what's around it. <clears throat> so what's the near context right here in this passage of the Gospel of Matthew? We see two warnings. We've seen two warnings. We've seen a warning in the faithless leaders and followers in the temple, and then a pictorial warning in the fruitless fig tree. And they're connected together. The one uh, illustrates the other. So these two warnings should loom large in our minds as we look to see what Jesus is talking about here. Two warnings, the faithless temple, the fruitless tree. So we learned one Central point from these two warnings, faith bears fruit. In fact, faith can bear amazing fruit, as it did in Jesus, and as he says it can in believers. Faith bears fruit is the central truth, which leaves us with one implication. When God speaks, we should listen and we should believe always. 
This is what the leaders and followers in the temple did not do, and this is what he's calling the apostles and us to do. We should always listen and believe when God speaks. Israel did not, and like the fig tree, they're going to be very severely judged because they did not listen to and believe the word of God. But the apostles are to be different, and you and I are to be different. When God speaks, when we have his word, we take warning from their bad example, and we heed God's word, and we believe. That's the teaching of the near context. But then also let's remind ourselves of the whole Bible frame, F-R-A-M-E, letter B. <clears throat> the whole Bible frame, which is to say last week we, we looked at what faith is in the Bible, and it is not defined in the Bible as we define it in our culture, and probably most churchgoers. If you didn't hear last week's sermon, I really would encourage you, it's so easy to find, find it and listen to it, because there's some very countercultural and even counter-evangelical cultural truths in the Bible that we all need really to understand here. What is the whole Bible frame? Well, we, we just can gain it by looking at the first time that the word believe occurs in the Bible. Not the first example, perhaps, of faith, but the first time the word is used. And where is that? That's Genesis 15, 6, where you remember the word of Yahweh has come to Abram, speaking to Abram. And Abram understands what God is saying. Abram believes it is true, and Abram rests on it. He trusts it. And what's that? That's faith. And that's what faith always is. It is always our response of embracing the Word of God. That's what it means in the Bible. Faith is not a feeling of confidence we work up inside of ourselves. Faith is not what we do when we don't really have full evidence and we need to make a leap to make up the deficit. Faith is when we hear God speak and we embrace His Word, understanding it, believing it, and trusting Him in it. So that's what Abram does, and obviously he, uh, he, he sinned, he failed, he faltered, but he went on in faith. And you see how firm his trust was that when he finally does have a son, he's willing to sacrifice that son at the word of God because he still trusts and rests on the word of God. So there's our example. Faith is always a response to a word of God. Faith is embracing a word of God. So we're instructed by the near context. We're instructed by the biblical frame. And thirdly, we're just instructed by scriptural logic. Letter C, we're instructed by scriptural logic. And I just ask you three questions here to think through, to make sure that we can purge ourselves of the misunderstandings that so many are, are afflicted with. Does the Bible say God's thoughts and ours are about the same? That this has got to be the assumption of people who think that they can work out what they should believe, that they should be able to figure out what God would want to do or would want to give, figure out themselves what the will of God is, and then work up faith in that and demand that God deliver on that on the basis of this verse. So if we think we can do that, if we think we can divine God's thoughts and work up confidence in our divination of his thoughts, does that mean that his thoughts and ours are really about the same? Is that what the Bible teaches? No, that is not. In fact, the Bible teaches quite the opposite of that, the exact opposite. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. I'll not take you there, but do write it down, of course. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, and this will sound familiar right away to most of you, for my thoughts are, are your thoughts? Are not your thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so 
My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So no, we can't assume that God and us think about the same way. The Bible says exactly the opposite. Well, secondly, then, does the Bible say that all of God's purposes are transparent to us? In other words, when we look at a situation, can we tell what God's doing there, what God's after? Can we look at circumstances and, and the development and, and, and figure out where God's going with this and what he means to do? And so then, convinced of that, ask God in faith. I mean, we've seen this, so we know that it's God's will for us to get this job or marry this person or get over this disease or whatever it is. We know what God wants to do, so we work up the faith and confidence to ask Him. Is that what the Bible teaches? All God's ways and purposes are transparent to us? No, in fact, it teaches the exact opposite. Here's a great verse, instructive in so many ways. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Very good for a Christian to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, what does it say? The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our sons forever that we may do all the words of this law. So there are the two categories, the secret things that are in God's mind that are not transparent to us. We can't see, we can't divine, we can't guess. They're not revealed, but... What, what is revealed is ours, and that is the object for our faith, and that is the director, the direct, and <laughs> trying to combine the words director and direction. It just isn't working for me. That is the direction and the director of our prayers, what God has revealed in his word. So a third question then from that, so can I ever have, now Jesus says here, he says, have faith and not doubt. Have faith and not doubt what? To many people, have faith and not doubt what you believe you know God wants to do. But can my knowledge that I've worked out for myself between my own two ears, can that ever be an object of faith and not doubt without a word from God? No, it never can, because I can be and frequently am completely wrong. So I can't find a basis for that kind of faith within myself. I should doubt everything, I think. I should be willing to doubt everything that I've come up with inside myself that isn't a word from God. That's all worthy of doubt and questioning and second thinking, but not God's Word. No, only God's Word is a fit object of that kind of faith, a faith that is faith and not doubt, like Jesus says. We've got to have a Word of God for that. As Numbers 23.19 says, Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Listen, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not establish it? Well, can we ask that of ourselves and our thoughts? Have we said and we don't do? Frequently. Have we thought and not been able to establish? Frequently. But God, no. What he says he will do, he will do. What he intends to do, he will establish. That's where our faith should be, an explicit word from God. And I hold up the Bible not to be, you know, whatever, uh, but to make sure we understand that's here and not here unless I've memorized it. <laughs> that's the only way the word of God is here. And I do commend that, but it better have started here and not been messed with. So that is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about have faith. He's talking about having a word from God, understanding it, believing in it, resting on it, and making that 
the basis of our faith. That's what have faith and not doubt is about. It's about God's word. And so now let's hear the words of Christ. What do do and say mean? We understand the mind of Christ better. Let's hear the words of Christ. What do do and say mean? He says, not only what was done to the fig tree will you do, but instead, even if to this mountain you say be picked up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. So what do these words mean? Well, let's first start with what they don't mean. What they don't mean is if you decide that something should happen and believe it hard enough, well, then it's going to happen. I hope what we've just talked about, but I've learned in decades of teaching, you can't be too clear and you can't repeat something too many times. It just can't be done. So I hope we're clear, but I'm going to say it again. If it's not a word, an express word from God, then it's not the faith that Jesus is talking about. So doing and saying has to rest on that and not what I think God ought to do. What I've worked up a confidence in myself, I really think God ought to do this, and I really think he wants to do this, and I really think he should do this, so I'm just going to believe real hard, and then I can say it and I can uh, do it. But no, that's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about? He's saying if God commands something and you believe it, it will happen. If God says something, if God promises something and you believe it, it will happen. It will be done no matter how impossible. And remember, that's what the metaphor of moving the the mountain is about. It's not about literally moving mountain. How many people spoke to mountains and moved them in Scripture? Zero. It's a metaphor for something that seems absolutely impossible, like, say, raising a dead person in the case of the apostles. If it's promised by God, we believe and don't doubt, and we can do and say what God calls us to do by his promise, and it will happen. That's what those words are about. So that's understanding the the words of Christ and, and seeing what the mind of Christ is. That is the principle of Jesus in verse 21. So now let's look at the promise of Jesus in verse 22. The promise of Jesus, where he says, And all things, as many as you may ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And first, let's make sure we sweep away a brutal misunderstanding. you've, You've surely heard it. Perhaps you've been subject to it. And that is the idea that takes these words out of all context and everything we've talked about the last week in the start of this sermon and just takes them as being absolute and free-flying. All things is just anything. You may ask, you make it up, and you believe, and that's just going to happen. Anything manufactured by my imagination, that's all things. And believing is convincing myself that I'm sure that God is going to do this. And then when it doesn't happen as it usually doesn't, then I blame God. Maybe I I leave my faith, and I proclaim to everybody, I became a a bold, chest-pounding keyboard atheist, and tell everybody that I tried God. I I tried him. I took him at his word here, and I believed him for a car, or a cure, or a career. And it didn't happen. So God failed. God didn't do what he promised. And that may be what those words meant if they were flying on the wind. But as we've seen, they're not. They don't mean whatever we think they mean. They mean what Jesus thinks they meant. And we know what he thinks they meant by putting it back in Scripture, which we've sought to do. That's a brutal misunderstanding. All things is anything I can dream up. What does 
what does, uh, does Luke say to Han Solo? There'd be a great reward for rescuing the princess. And, and he says, more reward than you can imagine. And Han Solo says, I don't know, I can imagine a lot. Well, a lot of people would see that in this verse. And it's not in this verse. So let's uh, spring or flee, I should say, from the brutal misunderstanding to biblical instruction. Jesus says basically the same thing differently in John 15, 7. I know you're writing this down, so jot that down and then turn with me in your Bibles to John 15, 7. Let's take a look at what he says there and let's, let's meditate on it and learn from it together. So John 15 is in the passage where Jesus is talking about abiding in him. He's the true vine. We're the branches. In John 15, 7, he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So a great many people look at that as if the, and my words abide in you part was not in the verse. But actually, that's the key to the verse. That's the key to understanding the promise Jesus is making. Now, what does it mean to abide in him? It means to have a vital relationship with him of living faith where I am committed to him in faith, and I belong to him, and I'm spiritually joined to him. The life of Christ flows into me. I live and I bear fruit from the life that Christ gives me, and the fruit-bearing vitality that Christ gives me. That's what it means to abide in him. What does it mean for his words to abide in me? Well, for his words to abide in me, those words are in my mind. They're part of my mental furniture and atmosphere, and they change the way I think and believe and live. His words abiding in me is a dynamic thing. It's not, it's not like the way the Pharisees memorized the law of Moses but didn't believe in it. Or they could have passed a hundred quizzes about the law of Moses, but didn't know the Messiah when he was standing three feet in front of them, raising the dead. It's not that kind of thing. It's the thing where his words are in me, embraced by faith. They're alive in me, and they affect the way I think. They affect my thing. I, I can show you that. Look back at John chapter 5. And we'll see the same phrase, and we'll see an illustration that shows exactly what I'm talking about. We'll read John 5, 37, 38. Every one of you is turning there right now after you jotted that down. 5, 37, 38. Is my saying it isn't magic. John 5, 37. And, uh, and the Father who sent me, he's borne witness about me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Now, what's the thinking of Jesus there? I can tell there's not the cause because I don't see the effect. Do you see? The effect of God's word abiding in them through faith would have been they would have recognized him and believed in him. But they're not recognizing him, and they're not believing in him, so he knows what hasn't happened. God's word has not abode, has not abided, has not been abiding in their hearts. What does that teach us? Well, that teaches us, again, that the abiding is not a passive static thing, but the abiding produces effects, that the words of God abiding in us affect the way we think and the way we believe and the way we live. So it is to them, Jesus says. He can tell what is and is not in their heart, but by what they do and do not believe. 
And here's another one, turn to chapter 8. See more about the same phrase. We're just looking at these words, but let's look at them from another angle now. John 8, 31 and 32, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Now the context shows us that they had not come to uh, real saving faith in him because just in a few words, they are accusing him of horrible things and speaking in a way that shows a lack of faith. Uh, So he says to those Jews who profess faith, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, do you see the sequel there? It's possible to be a false disciple, and the mark of a false disciple is someone who professes faith but does not abide in Jesus' word. Uh, Just as an aside, you know, when people, unbelievers try to talk about how many ex-Christians there are, and people like me say, no such thing. There is no such thing as an ex-Christian. And and I'm not saying that abominable, hellacious doctrine that says once somebody's made a profession of faith, well, he's always saved because he professed faith, no matter where his life goes. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's part of the definition of a Christian that you stay with Christ, so that if somebody can walk away from him, then by definition, he's not a Christian. Uh, did I make that up? Well, no, I didn't. I could point to a number of scriptures. I'll just stay with this one. The mark of a disciple is he abides in Jesus' word. Is this is a guy who's walked away from Jesus' word and is denying him? Well, as long as that's going on, I have no reason to say he's a disciple. That's a mark of a false disciple, not of a genuine disciple. A genuine disciple stays in Jesus' word. But let's continue. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. That's good. That's who you are. What's going to happen? And you will know the truth. So there is intellectual impact in abiding in Jesus' word. I will learn things. I will know things I wouldn't have known otherwise. I didn't know otherwise. They are all a fruit of abiding in Jesus' word. But wait, there's more. The truth will set you free. Now, what's that about? Now, in the context, that's about slavery to sin. And my natural state is the state of a slave to sin. And within me, there's no solution to that dilemma, to that misery. But it does come to me through the words of Jesus. And as I learn Jesus' word, and as I abide in Jesus' word, well, then I know more and more freedom. You see, it has an impact on my life. It has an impact on the way I live, the way I make choices, the way, what I value and what I don't value, what I love and what I hate. All of these things are affected by remaining in Jesus' word. So, in 15.7, where he, he says, when you abide in me and my words abide in you, what are his words doing in me? They're affecting the way I think. They're directing my thoughts, my will, my decisions. They're teaching me what I should pursue and what I should avoid, what I should love and what I should disdain and hold as unimportant. His words have an effect on the way I think, and that works out in my prayers. You see, the whole verse If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you will ask what you wish and it will be done. Why? Because my asking is guided by his word. What I ask, I ask because it's in accord with his word. It's informed by his word, which, remember, is the object of faith. So to ask in faith, I've got to have a word of God. Or else it's not faith, it's something else. So his words abide in me. And I ask what I wish because his words 
are showing me what to ask. They're pointing me to the available things <laughs> that God offers and God calls me to ask for. Uh, the gospel, uh, and pardon me, the, the uh, apostle John expanded on this and, and taught us more about this in his letter. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. He expands on it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. And here the apostle says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So we don't get what we ask because of our special status. And we don't get what we ask because we've hypnotized ourselves into thinking that it's a good thing or having really strong feelings about it. But it is a result of our relationship to the Word of God because we keep His commandments. And His commandments, that's an authority word. Commandments are not suggestions. I know you've heard many times. And so these are things that authoritatively truths that authoritatively direct our thinking. And as I keep his commandment, it directs me in what, I, what God wants me to pray for, what he's pleased for me to come to him and ask for. I keep his commandments and I do the things that are pleasing in his sight, so I am in harmony with his will. My prayers are, are part of the carrying out of God's will. So this is not about my internal feelings. It's not about God's internal feelings or God's internal plans. They're his commands. Commands are not unspoken. Commands by definition are spoken. These are about his words. That's my guide. Uh, if possible, even more expressly in chapter 5, turn to First John chapter 5. He's closing up his letter, but he wants to say a bit more about this. First John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Well, now, what is that exactly saying? What does it mean to ask according to God's will? Um, let's say that there are two major candidates for what that could mean. According to his will could mean according to what he intends to do, or according to his will could mean according to what he expresses that he wants done, what he has said he wants done. Now, which does it mean here? Both of those are good meanings, and it's a good thing to pray that God's will be done, but is he saying that, that we have what we ask if we ask in accord with what God wants to do? I, I kind of think in that case, why do you need to say that? <laughs> That if I ask God to do what he's going to do anyway, then I have what I ask for. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, you know, if somebody said, well, I'm walking up to the pulpit, why don't you preach a sermon, Pastor Phillips? Well, oh, that's pretty much what I'm coming up for, so you got it. <laughs> I'll grant your request, which I was going to do anyway. Is that what this verse is about? I don't think so. I don't think this is about that. We, we just talked earlier about the fact that we're not very good at guessing what God wants to do or what God intends to do in a situation. Uh, but this is, I think, in, uh, about his expressed will, the, the will that he says. We're not throwing darts in the dark. 
we are hearing what he says, like, like in chapter 3, verse 22, his commandments. And so praying according to his will is not praying according to what he wants to do, but according to what he has told me. Now, I'm going to explain and, and illustrate that more in just a bit, Lord willing. If you don't really understand it, I, I, I think you will better in a moment. But praying according to his will means praying in accordance with his word in accordance with what, he, with what he has said his will is. And then John says we can have confidence that we have the requests we're asking from God because we're praying the things that he said he wants, prayed for, or done. Now, we come finally to uh, a, uh, we've seen a brutal misunderstanding. We've seen biblical instructions. So now let's end up with a blessed and biblical understanding. Believing is the limitation now, that may not be transparent to you, but let me explain it. Believing is the limitation. Now, by, what, by that, what I mean is somebody coming at this verse from nowhere with no knowledge of the Bible or context would read him saying, anything you ask, you'll get, basically, and say, well, I guess that means anything I'll ask, I'll get. Anything. Anything I make up, anything I want, anything I can imagine. That's not true, as we've seen. So is there a limitation? I mean, all things sounds like all things. You know, why isn't all things a Tesla truck or a, or a jet or a flamethrower, you know? Why isn't that all things? And I'm suggesting that's not the all things. Well, why isn't that the all things? It does say all things. There doesn't sound like there's a limit in the word all things. That might be true. The limit is in the word believing. Do you see? That's the limit. Why is that a limitation? Because I can't believe something God hasn't promised. God hasn't promised me a flamethrower. So I can't ask for a flamethrower believing. He has not promised it. Are you following me now? I can't ask God for uh, a, a Tesla truck. God has not promised me a Tesla truck. Uh, if I even wanted such a thing. <laughs> uh, so I can't believe him to give me that. I don't have a promise from him to believe. So... Simply, here, here's, here's a paraphrase, first, of what Jesus says. If I could paraphrase it a little bit. Jesus is saying, in all things, as many as God's word authorizes and directs you to ask in prayer, believing God's promise, you will receive. That's the meaning of it. Anything God directs you to ask for, you ask for in faith, and you will receive it. Here's a very simple test on whether you should ask in faith and if this word applies to it, a very simple task. You just ask yourself the question, has God promised this or has he commanded this? And if the answer to that question is yes, then do exactly what Jesus said. Believe it without doubt and ask for it because it's a promise from God. It's a command from God. But if the answer to that is no, God is not promised, then listen to me, this is very important, Believing God for that, quote-unquote, is not faith. It's presumption. And presumption is not faith. Faith is a submissive attitude. Presumption is an arrogant attitude. So if I can't find a promise from God, and if, not guided, if I'm not guided by the word of God, it's not about faith. So God told the apostles to do things like raise the dead, command healings, and they should have not doubted and done exactly what he said. And they did. And indeed, impossible things happened. God doesn't call us to do those things, but he does call us to great and mighty things. And the things he calls us to 
uh, we should believe. There are a lot of people who'd be a whole lot more interested in healing and raising the dead than the things that God calls us to. But what does God call us to? Well, he calls us to love each other and to be long-suffering towards each other and patient and kind ready to forgive. He calls us to humble ourselves. He calls us to study His Word. He calls us to give ourselves in service and commit ourselves and all these things. And a lot of people's honest response would be, I'd rather raise a dead person. But this is what God's Word calls us to. And this is the sort of thing we should be praying about. And most of us, the better we know ourselves, would say, yeah, that isn't the category of impossible things. <laughs> Me learning to love people, like God says, that is pretty much moving a mountain. But that's what Jesus is talking to us about. So let's get into the practice of prayer, Roman numeral 2, and talk about some of the specifics and, and uh, applications. To do that, we need to lay down a few basic truths briefly to begin with. And I, I begin with the question, who to whom? In other words, who can pray and to whom should he pray? Now you say, well, that's a very basic question. Boy, I wish it were, but a lot of people don't get this at all. First of all, to whom? Let's start there. Generally in the Bible, prayer is addressed to the Father. Jesus teaches that, doesn't he, in his model prayer? How does it begin? Our Father, who art in heaven. Generally, prayer is addressed to the Father. You will see a number of passages where it's also addressed to the Son, and that's fine. But the general biblical pattern is it's addressed to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. So that's the to whom, generally to the Father. So now this next one flows. The question, well then, who can pray to this Father? And the answer, when you put it that way, is pretty obviously what? His children but only his children, because only his children have the right to call him father. Now, are we all born children of God? No, we are not. We're born children of Adam. We're born children of the devil. We're not born children of God, creatures of God, but rebels against God. We must become children of God. John 1:12. as many as received Christ to them, he gave the authority to, what's the word? Become children of God. If they become, then they weren't to begin with. Receiving Christ, we become children of God. What does Jesus say? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, all religions lead to God. Atheism leads to God. The trouble is they all lead to God as judge, jury, and executioner. The only way to come to God as Father is through Jesus. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And so Paul says in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So who prays? Children of God. They pray to God as their Father. Simply and fundamentally, if you're a child of God, you are always welcome to come and bring any good request or need or anything to your Heavenly Father. If you're not a child of God, there's only one prayer God wants to hear from you. And that's a prayer of repentance, pleading with him to become your savior, to apply the, the blood of Christ to you, casting yourself on his mercy, looking to him alone as Lord. That's the prayer he wants to hear. That's the only place to start. So how does prayer work? Number two, then I ask and answer briefly, how does prayer work? 
Well, prayer is us approaching God by faith in His Word. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that. Without faith, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. The very things He says in His Word. He is and He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. So if we want to come to Him in prayer, we must come to Him in prayer in faith, in his word. Calvin says it excellently and so briefly. Calvin says, prayer rightly begun springs from faith and faith from hearing God's word. That's just really good. Prayer rightly begun springs from faith and faith from hearing God's word. So so to put it logically and, and also in order of time, we hear God's word that begets faith in us Faith leads us to pray. The prayer comes from the faith. The faith comes from the Word of God. I hear God's Word. I believe I approach God by faith in prayer. Faith always assumes I have a Word from God, and that Word for you and me is found in Scripture, and here's the all-important Word, alone. And we really believe that. Of 100% of Christians who say that, I would guess maybe 68% really mean it. We try to be in that 68%. We really mean it. If it's not in Scripture, it's not a word from God. So what is happening when we pray, letter B? What's happening when we pray? Well, let me tell you what's not happening. (laughs) What's not happening in prayer is I'm not imposing my will on God. Can I get an amen? Can you imagine? (laughs) Now, yes, I'm sure all of us in our hearts have had times when when we kind of thought, we kind of wished we could, Make God see it our way. Make him do it our way. But then we stop and we think, and we think, oh, thank God he doesn't. Can you imagine if God started saying, I don't know what to do. Tell me. What do I do? Bob, Jane, Susie, Pedro, what do I do? Oh, man, that'd be the end of all things. (laughs) That would be a horrible end to all things. I often make myself think and say, no, but thank God he doesn't do what I want him to do, he does what he sees is right. And I don't pray him to get him to do what I want him to do. And I don't pray to tell him what he doesn't know. I imagine sometimes you, like me, have listened to people pray and you've wondered if that's what they think they're doing. They go into such detail about things in their prayers, you think that they're kind of catching God up on things he might have missed. But of course that never happens because he doesn't need any, he doesn't miss anything, he doesn't need us to tell him anything. That's not what's happening in prayer. What, what is happening in prayer? I'm approaching my good and giving Father in faith. I have words from God that give me confidence to come into His presence, bearing those words and praying according to those words. And as I ask in, in, in faith, listen, as I ask in faith, He does His will. My prayer becomes part of God's doing His will. A commentator named Robert Law said it very excellently. He said, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done in earth. Faith is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. Charles Spurgeon also said, the prayer of faith is a decree of God, a divine decree, beginning its operation. 
Our prayers of faith are part of God carrying out His will. Our best prayers are prayers that are in keeping with God's will, which we learn about from His Word. So that's what prayer is. That's who prays. That's how prayer works. So let's let's give some basic guidelines. I, I have found this very helpful. Pray then from faith in a command or a promise or a principle. Now, this could have been two sermons also, but I didn't want to get laughed at, so here we are. Pray from faith in, first of all, a command, number one, faith in a command. Let me illustrate that. I'll illustrate that by comparing two verses. What does it mean to pray from faith in a command? In John 15, 17, Jesus says this, I command you that you love one another. So there's a command of Jesus. I command you that you love one another. And then in Philippians 1, 9, we see the apostle Paul saying, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment. Now, why does Paul pray that? Because that's in accord with Jesus' command. Jesus commands Christians to love one another, and so praying for this Philippian church, what does Paul pray? That they will love one another. Why can he pray that in confidence? Because he's an apostle? Not necessarily. He could pray it just because he knows Jesus commanded it. Are you following? So you can pray for this church with great confidence that we will grow in love. And you should. And I do. Why? Because we know that's God's will for this church. How do we know that? We've divined that? Figured that out? Because Jesus says so. Jesus commands us to love one another. So praying that we would love one another is praying in accordance with the will of God. You see? And confidence that this command will be carried out. So pray in accord with a command. A command can inform us how to pray. Secondly, pray in accord with a a promise. We pray from faith in a promise. And here's a a simple example of that. 2 Samuel 7, verses 16 and 25. That's the chapter where Nathan the prophet comes into David and tells him about uh, God's promise to build him a house. And so in 7.16... God says through Nathan, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And David prays a prayer of gratitude and praise. It's wonderful to read. And he says this in verse 25. So now, O Yahweh God, the word that you have spoken concerning your slave and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have spoken. You see? He has a promise from God. He hears it. He believes it. He prays it. It's, he has it where Spurgeon has a book called a, a Checkbook in the Bank of Faith. And the idea of the book is these are promises of God that we should come to God in prayer uh, asking Him to do. And this verse says it. Do what you've promised. And that's what it is to pray uh, from faith in a promise of God. And God loves to hear his word brought back to him. Just as an aside, sometime, in, it's, it's best in Hebrew, but it'll work in English. Sometime, go through Daniel chapter 9 and see how many verses or parts of verses Daniel quotes in his prayer. It's like a patchwork. It's like a quilt made up of patches of scripture. All through that prophet's prayer. A wonderful thing. But I digress, but only just a little. So pray from faith in a promise. And thirdly, pray from faith in a principle. 
a principle. That is to say, something you know God wants, something you know is God's will. So here's my example. Acts 9.15, when Paul's been converted, and the Lord is trying to convince Ananias to go talk to him. It's been kind of a hard sell, but he does eventually go. And the Lord says to Ananias in Acts 9.15, go for he, that is Paul, listen, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Now, Paul heard these words, of course, God expressing what his will for him was. And so we read in Romans chapter 1, verses 5 and 10 and 15. Romans 1, 5, he says, Through Christ we've received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. He knew that he was called to that. But then I'll listen in verse 10, writing to these largely Gentiles in Rome, he says, Always in my prayers, earnestly asking if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. He could pray that because he knew God wanted him to bear his name, Christ's name, before Gentiles. Same in verse 15. In this way, for my part, I'm eager to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There Paul is praying as directed by the principle he knew of what God wanted his life to be. So pray as informed by a command, by a promise, and or by a principle. I just want to close with giving you a few specific examples, a few parts of life. One of these, if not all of these, is going to touch all of us. So for instance, how could we apply this in praying in a time of illness, number one? How could we apply this praying in a time of illness? And I hope you'll forgive me if if I use my own cancer as an illustration and, and sneak in a little update at the same time as I understand you, you uh, want to hear updates. I've just had my last shot in the treatment for my cancer. So I had the radiation treatments, which were the only hope of killing it, but we don't know if it's killed. So that started a course of these androgen deprivation therapy shots, which I had for a long time, and they have some unhappy effects, but hopefully the happy effect of starving the cancer. But I just had my last shot. So now starts the nail-biting time of seeing whether it's still there or not, whether it's been killed or not. And sometime in the next 12 months at the outside, 3 to 12 months, 5 to 12 months, sometime we'll have an idea whether the cancer is still there or whether it's been killed off or not. There will be tests to tell if it's still alive or not. So what do I do during this time? Should I believe God that he's going to cure me of my cancer in this life? I may have heard a well-intentioned person saying that he or she was believing God that I would be healed. Well, should I tell you, my church, that I'm believing God to heal me of this cancer? Can I believe God to heal me of this cancer? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Can I believe him to heal me of this cancer in this life? Well, let's put it to the test that I gave you. Do I have a promise from God to heal me of every disease I have in this life? And the answer to that question is no. I don't have any promise that he's going to heal me from every disease in this life. I mean, it's a fact that if I'm not raptured to be with Christ, I'm going to go to him by death. Scripture says that, Hebrews 9. It's appointed for man once to die and after this judgment. That's just the natural course of things. 2,000 years of Christians have all died so far. And if Jesus doesn't come uh, uh, for me, then there's uh, only one way I go to him, and that's by death. So... 
uh, in the immortal words of a, a former Surgeon General, we're all going to die, of, we're all probably going to die of something, she said. <laughs> Jocelyn Elders, if you knew her, she's unforgettable. You're all probably, the good doctor said, you're all probably going to die of something. Well, that's a certainty, and I don't have a promise that God's going to heal me of this cancer. But do I have a promise that he ultimately will? Yes, I do. Because I, I know Jesus, who's the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And that will be a resurrection body, most gloriously free from the corruptions of the flesh. Hasten that day. And free from all of the weaknesses and diseases of the flesh. So no, I can't believe God for my healing in this life. I don't have that promise. Uh, but I certainly can pray for that and simply add if it's your will, if it's to your greater glory. But is, does that mean there's nothing I can pray? Well, no, not at all. Can I pray according to a command or a principle or a promise? Yeah, I can pray from all three. But what, what command could I use to guide my prayers in this time? Or, or could any ill person or somebody suffering with pain or disease, I'm just using myself, but this would apply to any Christian with a pain or a disease or an in injury, uh, what command would help us? Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do not fear. I am your God. There is a command. I can pray by that command. And Heavenly Father, I pray that, that you will remove from me all fear and replace it with confidence in you and with assurance from your promise uh, that I need not fear because you are with me, and so forth. And, and go on in, in the light of that command. Or Matthew 6, 34, you know the Lord Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. Well, and sometime in the next 12 months, I'll find out if that, if that monster is still lurking inside of me. Well, do I fear about it? Do I worry about it? Jesus commands me, do not worry about tomorrow. So I can pray in accord with that. God, you've commanded me not to worry, and I mean to obey. Give me the strength not to worry. Fill my heart with hope and trust. Or Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and thanksgiving. Make, let your requests be made known to God. And what? The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a command. Be anxious for nothing, but pray about everything. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. So yeah, I can pray informed by the commands of God. Is there a promise that I can pray in faith? Yes, there is, and I have many times. I, um, Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I can pray from that promise and pray that God will fill my heart with the assurance of his presence and thank him for his presence and the knowledge that with his presence I need fear nothing and that he will walk every step with me. And that will guide prayer according to God's will. Prayer we can pray in faith. We do have that promise from God. Every Christian does. Is there a principle that can guide my praying during this time? Yes, there is. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. What does Paul say in Philippians 1.20? He says, in accord with my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Oh, now there's an all-purpose principle, isn't there? An all-weather 
principle, if you will, an all-health principle, that God will be magnified and glorified through me, and I can pray in accordance with that in faith because I have that principle from God. Let's pull out a few more subjects that, that will touch most of us eventually in this little list. Let's say marriage, and let, let's go to hard parts of marriage. Maybe uh, most of your marriage is great. Hopefully all your marriage is great, but most marriages come into rough times. So let's say your spouse is, is really being a pain right now. And, and legitimately, it's not just in your head. There's something that is really torquing you. And so how could a husband pray in this time? Could he, could he pray for his wife's sanctification? Sure, that's according to the will of God. But is there, and I'm just going to pick out maybe one or two of my, my three, is there a command that a husband can pray while his wife is being some cause of, of grief to him? Is there a command he can pray? You don't know any commands to husbands? I can think of one. <laughs> uh, you are too. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And what can he pray? Heavenly Father, right now, that command is being difficult. But it is your command and it is good. And forgive me for being slow to obey it. Grant me the grace to obey it. Here's what it means to obey it. I need your help. But I want to glorify you and walk in your ways. There it is. Can you pray that in faith? Absolutely. Why? You know it's the will of God. <laughs> How do you know that? It's a command. <laughs> and a wife could do the same thing. Your husband really is being a grief. He really is being a pain. And, and so, do you know any commands of God that could guide your prayer? Yes, you do. You know God's called you to be his helper. You know that God's called you to be his crown. He's called you to submit to him, subordinate yourself to him, to help him to respect him from your heart? Could those guide your prayers for yourself in this time as you also pray for his sanctification? Because you know that part of God's will for him as well. You know how to pray for him. And we want to pray selfishly, but we pray for our husband, our wife as a child of God, for God's blessing and goodwill in that person's life. So marriage, yeah, family, children towards parents, parents toward children. Children, you have any commands from God about being a child? Parents, do you have any commands from God about raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Well, that sounds familiar right there. Could that guide our prayers in faith? Yes, it could, and it should. This is how we pray according to the will of God, in faith. What about some specifics of Christian living? Uh, what, are, what about Christians who are holding back in fear from moving forward. Sure, some Christians know the next step they should take. They should be, they haven't picked a church, they need to pick one. They're, they've found one, but they haven't joined it and committed themselves to its, to its uh, leadership and oversight. And some, yes, sure, it's, it's laziness, it's stubbornness, but in some, perhaps it's fear. It's scary to make that commitment. Is there a command that we could pray? Well, there's 2 Timothy 1.7. Where Paul trying to get Timothy to move forward and keep up a pace in the dark times coming. Paul says, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. And we pray that for ourselves, saying, God, forgive me for being lorded over by my fear instead of you. Forgive me for that sin. Thank you for the gift of power and love and a sound mind. Help me to walk forward in faith and not in fear. Do we have a command? Yes, we do. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
Father, I know the presence of fear is, is because of an absence of faith. Forgive me that sin. Help me to walk forward in faith and not fear. Are you seeing, are you seeing how this works? I hope. Uh, you, you see in your heart that you're cold towards God. You're people talking great things. Maybe you hear some things in a sermon about loving God and your heart is just cold like it was left outdoors overnight. And what do you do? Is there a command that would help? Yes, there is. Jesus has asked what the great commandment is. And Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 38, you know the words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you can go to your father and say, Father, you don't not know that my heart is cold. Forgive me this sin for letting it grow so cold and just walking in such coldness. Help me to love you as I should with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. This is praying in accord with the command of God. Do you have a promise that would help? Yes, you do. 2 Corinthians 3.18 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And you could pray, Father, forgive me for taking my eyes off of Jesus. Help me to put my eyes on him because I know as I do, my heart will be warmed and lightened with love for you. And just uh, one more. Suppose we get little out of our Bible reading. We know we should get more, but it seems so dry. Could we pray anything? Yes. Is there a promise? Yes. Is there a principle? Yes. There's the principle in John 6.63. Jesus says, the words that I speak to you, the, 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 the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and life. And so, Father, I know this word I'm looking at is spirit and life, but I'm not getting the life in it. So help me in what is missing. Open my heart, warm my heart with love and the reality of what I'm reading. Or a promise. We can go back again to John 8, 31 and 32. If I continue in Jesus' words, I'm his disciple, I'll know the truth, and the truth will free me. I don't see it freeing me, so I pray in accord with that promise that that will be true in my life. Do you see, whatever situation you're in with a Christian, as a Christian, whatever situation you're in, there's a word of God for you. There's a command and or a principle and or a promise, all of which can direct our prayers and make it possible for us to pray in our lives, for ourselves, for others, in faith, in faith in a word from God, which is the only thing Scripture means by faith. So the fruitful prayer of faith, we have a great and good God who loves us and loves to give to us to meet our deepest needs. He loves to give. He loves to be all in all to us. He loves us to bear fruit to his glory. And so like Psalm 1 says, as we meditate in his word day and night, we bear fruit in due season. And we know his we know his fruitfulness in our lives and in our prayers as our minds are more and more molded by him and his word. I just close with Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. And it helps to know that that Hebrew word translated desires isn't one of the normal Hebrew words for desires. It's the Hebrew word that simply means the requests, the things you ask for. When does God give me the things I ask for? when I delight myself in him. How do I delight myself in him? Psalm 1, I delight in his law 
and I meditate in it day and night, and it directs my thoughts and my prayers. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, how powerfully and directly it speaks to us. Grant us ears to hear and to retain and to put this into practice in our lives to your glory and to our good. In Jesus' name, amen.